The critical race theory panic has white people afraid that they might be complicit in racism. Literal CNN headline. Can I read that to you again? The critical race theory panic has white people afraid that they might be complicit in racism. Like, bingo, CNN. (laughs) (laughs) You hit the nail on the head. Well done. Hi, I'm Rebecca Cohen. And I'm Maya Grants. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. Today we're ruining Wordle and Whoopi. (laughs) In our last episode, we talked about maybe loosening up with our, how we approach the episodes, we often like to have an anchor topic, mm. some big topic that we delve into. And we were talking about maybe we could just kind of shoot dive. the shit. Deep, deep dive. Yeah. Right? Not, not that we're not going to dive deep because we always do, but we might talk about different stuff and, and maybe have a looser structure. And I feel like that's kind of what we're doing this episode. Except for the fact that we still were preparing for it for an hour and a half. So that... I know, but that's us. That's what we're going to do regardless. We can't just like shoot the shit casually without an hour of preparation. Well, Come on. Who are that's we? That's true. I think we could do a little less. I think we could do a little, but let's just see. Let's just see. So first of all, how are we doing? What are we drinking? Let's start with you, Maya. How are you doing and what are you drinking? Well, I am drinking a bourbon hot toddy with apricot jam to lend it a little sweetness. I do not have my drink shaker, but don't get me one, guys, because I'm only on this residency for one month. I'm in North Carolina on an artist residency, and I am in guest faculty housing that is situated in an undergraduate student dorm, guys. I love this. You are literally living in a dorm I am living in a dorm where my next door neighbors and all the other doors on this hall have like the whiteboard on the dorm room doors like for yes yes that's great it's fantastic i think do you have a whiteboard on your door no i do not have a whiteboard on my door i think you should put one there (laughs) and i think you should start just posting funny things so that everyone will start talking about the funniest door on the floor and then it'll be in the building well i think it's more like like 44 year old will answer all of your sex questions yeah, Let's see how that, that goes. I'm sure that'll go over really well in a conservative Southern university. Um, it's still college. Maya. That's true. That's true. So I'm here and I'm doing this artist residency and doing all kinds of amazing research that I'm sure I will be sharing in future episodes. You don't have anything to share right now? No, because I then I can't go deep into it. I'm doing research um, into it into the way that voice and elocution and voice training was a major and important tool in the construction of early 20th century white supremacy. And it is fascinating. It is so interesting. So fucking interesting. Oh my God. Oh my God. I can't wait to see what you produce. I'm like really excited. Oh my God. It's very, very interesting. So that is my story. Now, how are you doing and what are you drinking? Well, I am a little bit drunk already. You've been drinking. You've been going for a while now. Yeah, I pre-partied. 
I came home from work and immediately went to go look at a, a neighboring apartment. So the our neighbor, seven floors above, they are considering selling their apartment or possibly renting it. And Matt arranged to have a look at it. And I met him there. And um, it turns out that our neighbor is actually uh, a New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. Oh, my reporter. God. So oh aside God. from a lovely tour of their beautiful apartment, uh, he and his wife also treated us to some cocktails, well, some wine and champagne and snacks. And we had conversation and it was great. And I got well lubricated before even getting started. I am drinking wine because that's what we were drinking upstairs. So I thought, I guess never it's mix. probably good to just never continue. I would never, I say never say never when it comes to mixing. I don't like absolutes, but in this case, I don't know. I went conservative with it. I'm having <laughs> red wine. It's a Merlot. It's a California Merlot. It's, it's a full bodied wine with intense plum flavor. Oak spice, clove, and nutmeg add bold, jaunty notes. I love the word jaunty. Jaunty in response as a wine. No, no, no. no. You're reading the label. You're reading the label. How is it? I know. I'm literally reading you the label. Yes, I know. It's totally adequate. It's a perfectly nice California. But also, you've already had so much to drink. Oh, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I can't. I couldn't adjudicate fairly everything tastes just great to me right now well i want to get to our topics of the day so i just want to quickly Mm -hmm. thank our patrons who seem to have gotten through the surge okay even though a lot of us were dealing with omicron Mm. uh and we continue to hang out on discord and we wish you would join us because Our listeners are the best. We have the smartest, best, funnest, most interesting listeners in the world. I can't disagree with the word of that. Come to patreon.com slash sauce podcast and join us on the Sauce Speakeasy. All patrons get to join the Sauce Speakeasy and we'd love to see you there. going back to our roots where we're really going to ruin something that people really love, something that is a pleasure for so many of us right now in these dark and dreary times, which is the new hot online word game, Wordle. Do you play Wordle? Do I play Wordle? (laughs) Um, Did you know that it got sold to the New York Times? Oh, yes. I mean, that's part of what we have to talk about. Right? R.I.P. Wordle. Yeah, yeah, R.I.P. Free Wordle. It was apparently in the low seven figures. Which is, hey, fantastic for the creative Wordle, but makes me just a little sad if they change it, which presumably they will. I mean, maybe they'll just, like, put ads on it and you can still do it. It just ruins it. It just ruins it. Briefly, if you're not familiar with Wordle, you should be. Where have you been? Right? It's this very simple game that uh, some Brooklyn resident created for his partner. Yes, because he knows she loves games, so he made it for her. It's a love story. It's a love story. And the name is a, it's a play on his name. His name is like Wordle. His name is Wardle. Wardle, okay. And so the game is Wordle. The object is to guess a five-letter word. 
and you have six chances to guess it. And each guess, the game tells you if you got any letters correct or if the letter that you guessed is in the word but not in the position that you put it in. Yes. And um, it's very visually pleasurable. It's super simple. There isn't any crap on the screen. Right. No bells and whistles, really. It's very straightforward. Very, yes. But honestly, the, the best part of it is, number one, that there's only one word a day. Like when you do the Wordle for that day, there's not a new game until the next day. Mm-hmm. And you can share it very quickly on social media you can share how you did without giving away what the word is. And, and mm-hmm. it keeps track of your record. Oh yes. You have, which I love record of your performance. So you can compare to friends and see what your median get number of guesses is and so forth. So we're, we've gotten to the pleasures. It's, it's visually pleasurable. It was created as a love story. It's just once a day. So it's special it tracks your ongoing uh, achievements without too much fuss about it and without you having to like sign up and like all of this stuff. There's this very easy community sharing element of it. So like everybody is playing. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there's a thing about it, which I realized two or three days in, which is that the words are always going to be easy. Like they aren't, it isn't like Scrabble where... Well, yeah, they're they're not not obscure words that you have to have a special dictionary to know. Oh, no, no, they're words. They're just straight up words. But there's a lot of five-letter words in the English language. Yes, but it's not like like Scrabble where I'm going to memorize all the two-letter words so that I can win or like I have to have a really extensive vocabulary. And often that really helps me. Like I Mm. find myself when I'm playing being like, remember, Maya... This is not going to be some fancy word, right? This right, is right. going to be an it's easy word. word. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just a word that you would use, like today. Yeah. Most of them are are words that you would use. There's not really anything that's sort of archaic or unusual. Um, what's funny is okay. This past weekend, I flew out to California for a whirlwind trip to my cousin's son's bar mitzvah. And the sermon for the bar mitzvah on Saturday started with the rabbi talking about Wordle. No, come on. I am Stop not it. kidding. 100% true. <laughs> he, he opened his sermon by talking about Wordle and, you know, explaining what it is. You know, he asked the congregants, you know, raise your hands. Like, how many of you play Wordle? What he was using it to illustrate is, I think, something that uh, gets to the heart of what makes Wordle fun. He was saying, in essence, that it is something that brings people together around a common purpose. People that are separated by geography and philosophical leaning and politics and all kinds of differences can all kind of come together to share their results, you know, uh, complain about a word that was particularly hard, rejoice in a high, you know, an easy one or a, a, a not a high score, but you know what I mean, one that they or got like quickly. a really a really good first guess that a sort re- of sets you on, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That there's this universality to it, and the the very shareable nature of it, because as soon as you're done, it invites you to share your result. Yes, a- and this creates a sense of common purpose and 
I mean, honestly, science preserved this rabbi. Every remark he made throughout the weekend of this bar mitzvah, Friday night, Saturday morning, he was so hard trying to emphasize the idea of community responsibility. Oh, my God. It was all just like about how we have obligation. The Torah gives us this, this directive to help our fellow man, but to preserve the dignity of those we are helping because we're all part of a community together. And I'm like, my heart went out to him. I'm like, you're, you are walking a line so beautiful and delicate, like trying to approach this topic in a way that will alienate no one and, you know, offend no one. Alienate no one and offend no one, but hopefully, hopefully push a a button. Get get these people, get these fucking people. Well, I I mean, bless the rabbi. Uh, One of my favorite writers about things like games uh, is this guy, Ian Bogost, who's a wonderful video game designer and academic and kind of weirdo. And he's a great writer and he often writes for the Atlantic and he wrote for the Atlantic about Wordle. And he says, uh, this is why Wordle is, is good. It's unoriginal design. It's ritual comfort. It's interpretive sharing mechanism and one that may disappoint you, but that you need to accept the fact that it's just a game and games are fun. So he talks about how uh, it has, it comes from a tradition of what he calls trial and error code breaking games. So he says a similar paper and pencil game called Bulls and Cows, in which players try to guess a four digit number is at least as old as table tennis. And there was a book, uh, there was a version called Jotto, in the early 50s, which inspired a TV game, a TV game show called Lingo from the 80s, uh, and that the design is based on that. And he says that it it adopts and extends this principle of ritual comfort. It arrived at a moment when the news feels particularly dire and command over daily life proves difficult. People are grasping for comfort and particularly enduring comfort. I think that is really beautifully put. And I noticed that I didn't fall into like New York Times hive, like the really hard games that all of, that everybody I know is addicted to. Like, no, like I was not into it. And there's something so fucking comforting about Wordle. It's like a big fluffy blanket. It's like a little tasty pleasure that's like a big fucking comfy blanket. It's easy. The words are easy. I can feel smart because they're, it's not going to be a hard word. Like, yeah, it's a very fluffy, cozy, warm blanket of a game. I feel that. And, and as we've talked about in past episodes uh, about sort of the things that give us pleasure in times of stress, it has the qualities. Like, it is totally contained, self-contained, and divorced from any subjectivity. It's just letters that make up words. But um, there is one thing. I have a technique that kind of breaks it. My technique can allow you to guess pretty much any word in four guesses maximum. Okay, so what's your maximum? Well, I'm hesitant to share it because I I don't want to ruin the game for people. I'm not saying it ruins the game, but like it depends because like I feel like four guesses is is pretty 
reasonable regardless of whether you use my technique. But um, Well, I don't need it because most of the time I've been doing it in three guesses. Okay, what are you, tell me how many games you've played. I've played 19 games. Okay. Uh, 10 of those games I've done in three guesses. 10 out of 19, so slightly more than half in three. Uh-huh. And then four in four guesses, mm-hmm. three in five guesses, and one in six guesses. Okay. I have 29 games played, 11 of which I've gotten in three or fewer guesses. Nine in four guesses, six in five, and three in six. So percentage-wise, 11 out of 29, that's less than half. But four or fewer, I have a 20 out of 29 in four or fewer. Yes, I have a 14 out of 19 in four or fewer. Like my median is four. Right. And I think as you play more, you'll find that your median gets a little higher. <laughs> but um, my, okay, so my strategy, don't listen to this if you don't want to hear a strategy that is quite frankly foolproof. No, it's actually not foolproof. <laughs> I think you, you could easily not get very far with it. You do have to actually use your brain somewhat. But I start with the word stern. Every time? Every time. Okay. Because S R and N and E S E R and N are the four most common letters in English. Yes. And um, then I do either plaid, P L A I D, or claim. I prefer to do claim, C L A I M, because L is very common and I is extremely common, and C is not as common as L and the other consonants mentioned, including T, but. It's like the next tier of consonants, like three or 4% of letters are Cs. Um, and then after I do claim, I will do do because okay. D is pretty common after C. It, or if I did plaid, I'll do cough uh-huh. to get that C in there. Now, the idea is that in the first three guesses, that way I have covered all of the vowels. Yes. And all of the most common consonants. From there, you can almost always get it in your fourth guess. A lot of the time you can get it before the fourth guess, particularly like if you, you know, if it happens to have a lot of letters from plaid or claim. See, I think for me, part of the pleasure is starting with a different word every morning. Mm, I appreciate that. I do. Like, like, and I try to have words that like get a lot of vowels in early, the S, the T's, like whatever. But I, I like to, I like to... Number I don't one, know. T is not as common as you think it is. <laughs> it is very common, but you're better off. You're better off with N than with T. People don't realize that. And number two, vowels are not as helpful to you as consonants. That is something I've learned. Like Matt's whole thing, he came up with the strategy of starting with the word adieu. Which, oh like, my first god, of all, not an English word, but whatever. Their dictionary accepts it, and it has many vowels but the truth is that you're not really narrowing things down with vowels it's well, it's actually consonants that you need early on but yeah I just I feel like I don't I'm just not as systematic with it and I actually feel like I've been doing it the first thing when I wake up in the morning mm, mm. and it's like this very pleasurable thinking about letters 
first thing in the morning. It's like, it's really like, maybe that's why I keep connecting it to a soft, cozy blanket. Like it's, <laughs> it's really, there's something about the, and, and that's the thing is that it is easy. They're going to run out of words. Like there is a specific time at which, because the, the designer and his partner made a list of 2,500 words that sort of fit in the rubric of five letter words that are sort of within that realm of like, not too crazy, not too absurd, not too esoteric. It's weird that, that the times bought it for millions of dollars when like, there is a finite, there's an end to this game. That's a really interesting point that I hadn't even thought about. There are a finite number of five letter words, especially if you narrow it down to those that are in any kind of common usage or anything approaching that. Yeah. For me though, one of the things that also makes it fun for me, but also maybe makes it a little easier for me is my experience with early literacy, like teaching children to read. You, I've become very familiar with which combinations of consonants can begin or end a word and things like that. Uh, so it's applicable. I, I'm actually playing right now. And I've already gone through three yeses, so I'm totally humiliated. I'm not going to get it in less than four. But, like, you know, if you know, for example, that there's an N in your word, but it's not the first letter, you start yes. to say, like, okay, well, yes. if it's going to be at the end, what letters could come before an N? Or if it's going to be the second to the last, totally. what could you possibly totally. combine it with? You have to think a little bit about how the language works yes and that's what's so that is what's so pleasurable about it i'm like i agree oh there's an s but it's not there and it's going to be st and like i go through the sound it's just yeah, yeah. very very pleasurable i've just i've spent such an inordinate amount of time in my life thinking about what consonants can come after an s and which ones can't, <laughs> you know? Like, I know I have that stuff down, and it's really gratifying to have a venue where I can apply that knowledge other than teaching first graders. Well, I hope that Mr. Wardle and his partner just have a really nice, like, can get a really good apartment now. Yeah, I, I mean, if there's like... one that might be for sale if you first me, I'd recommend checking it out because it's a gorgeous apartment. Well, I think that it's time to move on from Wordle to the Holocaust. Great transition. <laughs> Okay, so the Holocaust. Let's get, <laughs> let's get to that. All right. We're not just talking about the Holocaust for fun, although we can do that. Um, done it. We've we done do it. some more. I highly suggest you go back to our episode about the Holocaust in popular culture. But uh, there was a recent pop cultural figure, the great and good Whoopi Goldberg, who talked about the Holocaust with almost breathtaking uh lack of education on this particular topic yeah. like bre like breathtaking and and i just think she's so great and i always love to hear her break things down but this was like really shocking i think that's part of it i think one of the things that was hard about it was to have her demonstrate such total lack of aware it was like wow um she mm. said 
that the Holocaust wasn't about race. It's just white people doing it to white people. It's got to have a, a little bit of, of okay. context here. Uh, it shouldn't just come out and say that, like, hey, everyone, I have a You know what I've been thinking about? Here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I guess on this show she's on, The View, she's still on, and it's still a show, apparently. Uh, they were talking about how this uh, Tennessee school board banned Mouse. Art Spiegelman's amazing comic, Mouse. It's about his uh, father's experience in the Holocaust. Uh, by the way, apparently this county is like next door to the Scopes Monkey Trial County. Oh, yeah. brilliant. Oh, exactly. my fucking God. There you go. God. But they're, they've banned it for being inappropriate for kids or something. And, um, yeah, having nudity in it. And um, Joy Behar said that this was just a canard to throw you off from the fact that they don't like history that makes white people look bad. Yeah. Which I think she might be onto something. Oh, it feels it feels very much like part of the CRT thing. But we'll talk about that. In a it's all connected, right? But, yeah. but, but Whoopi, I think, kind of bristled at that idea. Whoopi said, well, this is white people doing it to white people, so y'all going to fight amongst yourselves, she said, referring to the Holocaust. Um, and then the conversation went on. Full disclosure, I have not watched it. I do not watch The View and have not even watched clips of it. I've just read an article about it. Whoopi went on to say, if you're going to do this, let's be truthful about it, because the Holocaust isn't about race. It's about man's inhumanity to man. Or she said, isn't about race, and then went on to say, in so many words, it's about man's inhumanity to man. And she got some pushback on these comments. <laughs> yeah. Um... The Anti-Defamation League CEO, Josh Jonathan Greenblack, tweeted at her that um, the Holocaust was about the Nazi systematic annihilation of the Jewish people, who they deemed to be an inferior race. They dehumanized them and used this racist propaganda to justify slaughtering six million Jews. Holocaust distortion is dangerous. Um, the U.S. Holocaust Museum, in what seemed to be a subtweet, referring to Whoopi, but they didn't directly address her, said, racism was central to Nazi ideology. Jews were not defined by religion, but by race. Nazi racist beliefs fueled genocide and mass murder. So subsequently, yeah. Whoopi issued an apology, and she referred to those comments by the uh, Anti-Defamation League guy and said, um, I stand corrected. It was about both race and man's inhumanity, inhumanity to man. She wrote, the Jewish people around the world have always had my support. Blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry for the hurt I've caused. Blah, 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 blah. I, I know. Mean, here's the thing. I'm not going to stop enjoying Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, of course not. But I think what's weird about this moment, it's not about Whoopi Goldberg, frankly. Of course, right. It's about this moment where right now we're seeing a lot of book banning that's part of this surge of post-critical race theory backlash against March for Black Lives. This, this is what we're seeing right now. And we did two amazing episodes about critical race theory, and I encourage you all to listen to them. But right now, we are having a lot of school districts freaking out 
and not dealing with the things that were exposed by March for Black Lives. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that they're reacting is by anti what they're calling critical race theory. And it's coming out in banning books for other, for reasons that they'll say have nothing to do with, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's just disappointing that Whoopi cannot see how this is a part of that or could not. Right. And, and to be fair, to be fair, having grown up with such tremendous white privilege in this country Mm-hmm. As a Jew and as the daughter of Israelis, I don't think I understood viscerally how Jews were a race until I went back to Eastern Europe on a roots trip to go see where my grandparents lived before the Nazis <laughs> killed them mm-hmm. um, and saw the way that I was treated and looked at by Polish people. Mm-hmm. Because to them, they saw me as a Jew and they saw me, and I feel like there was a combination of that trip. And having just lived, as I did, in rural Mississippi, learning my civil rights history properly for the first time in my young life, where I was like, oh, (laughs) Jews in Europe, like, it was the same as Black people in America. Every year, the people in power would get together and go, what do we do with these Jews? And they would give them access to land, and then they would take the land away, and then they would, like, raise taxes so that they couldn't own the land all of the tactics of white supremacist terrorism, they're the same. They were the same tactics used in Reconstruction, and they were the same tactics used in Europe towards the Jews. It was the same. But here, Jewishness is different, although anti-Semitism has been on the rise since, I mean, you've seen it. We've talked about this before. Yeah. It, I mean, there's, there's a lot folded into this, and it's maybe too much to tease apart right now but there's many issues to think about i mean there's just the construction of whiteness and we've joked before and talked before about it you know i like to joke that jews have only been white since 1967 that that's like the year we became white and the the essence of that joke is what we consider to be white is a changing thing and yes. It, it, the yes. definitions and boundaries around it are not fixed. And and I think that's one of the things that people are battling right now or what we're trying to communicate. And that was something actually Trevor Noah was talking about recently when Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson that uh, God, oh, talk God. about those fucking douchebags. And they're talking about like, well, I'm not white. I'm actually kind of a tan color. And they recently, like, like talking about race, like this is the first time they've ever invented this. And, and, and Trevor Noah was like, you know, in Africa, we never called ourselves black, right? We were like, there were tribal designations for where we were yeah. from. Like, that was something yeah. you called up. We didn't call ourselves that shit. Like, yes, race is a construction. It's mutable and it's constantly changing. Also, the construction of race has had really fucked up consequences that people who are assigned these identities are dealing with right now. History is writing our present. So Mm -hmm. those things are both true at the same time. And it it seems to be really a a very difficult conversation for people to have. Yeah. And it's it's confusing. I think also the status of... of the Jew is confusing to people. Oh, yeah. Even beyond, you know, we can talk about how Italians or Irish people were not white. 
no. Irish people were not considered white Absolutely at a time not. in the United States and, and Italians as well. Like that has changed over time. And, and like part of the reason that, that there was a Columbus day mm-hmm. was that was on the part of Italian Americans who were trying to be like, we contributed to this country too. It's not like, exactly. like that was, that was Italian Americans trying to fight the racism that they were facing as being right. called and then whatever. Became, Dagos and yeah, Wops and now whatever. Yeah. Now, it, now it's a whole racist issue in and of itself. Let's say racialist. So the complicating factor, of course, with Judaism or the Jewish people is what I'm struggling with right now is like, what even is it? How do we define the members of this group? Because there's not a nation that they come from. And there's not a physical marker like skin tone that people can believe because like obviously that's complex and skin tone is not directly related to the how one's race is designated and how one is treated and all of that those things are all very complicated but on the surface we tell ourselves well black people have dark brown skin and white people have light peach colored skin but jews don't have a particular skin color and many people who identify as jews or who are identified by others as being Jews. They are not practicers of the Jewish religion. They, they don't observe the Jewish religion at all. They say they're Jewish culturally, and that leads to a whole inter-Jewish right. debate. Like, can you be a Jew with that? And that's something that every Jew goes through. Well, I don't even celebrate these things, so why am I being right. assigned this identity when this is not because my identity? Because Hitler would have killed you too. That's okay, there that you go. Is the, that is the answer. Um, But, of course, in the United States and many Western countries, we have ideas about what a religion is, and a religion is separate from being an ethnic identity or a race. Religion is a matter of belief, but for Jews, it is, is, but it is also more than that. And uh, for (laughs) anti-Semites alike, it is also, it is essentially a race. So I kind of love this conversation because it forces people if you really look at the history of it to face the reality that race is constructed yes yes you like a hundred percent thought that jewish people were race when i say that like the people of europe in the past the people of america in the past there was i was telling you earlier I was doing research, looking for contemporary news articles on social issues because I was writing about social issue films of the 1930s. And I came across articles that were titled things like, you know, or are the Jews a race? Like this was a public conversation that was happening in mainstream magazine articles in the 1930s. And one of the things that I find amazing when you look at the slipperiness of it, when I lived in the South, there was a there was a synagogue there from 1905 because a lot of Jews who were escaping persecution in Alsace Lorraine did go to the south of to to the American South post Civil War, and the Jews were very useful to white Southerners in Reconstruction because they occupied that in between space, but also Jews were welcomed into whiteness and a lot of Jews disappeared into whiteness and so they were allowed to disappear into whiteness in the south at a certain time and so so this idea of like 
yes, it is constructed, it is changing constantly, and so we know it's not real. It's always deployed for certain political ends. And that is the same with blackness in this country. Right. So, so, and that's the part of it that's so maddening is that that's part of what people are afraid of happening if we read these books, is that we'll realize how much fixed notions of race are historically contingent bullshit. And like, that's what people are afraid of because if people realize that, that threatens white supremacy and people are not going to be able to have that. And so that, that's, that's, that is what is so frustrating in this moment. Like, yeah, those are all white people. No, not then it wasn't. Right. And just that concept of white people, that it exists, that it's a categorization that in itself is only because of white supremacy. You have to define your group in order to define the other groups that you are not part of who are inferior and so forth. And Matt just shared with me the dedication page, like after the title page and the book Mouse is a quotation from Adolf Hitler that says, the Jews are absolutely a race. I'm paraphrasing now because it's not in front of me. The Jews are absolutely a race, but they're not human. So, so just in terms of where the white supremacist loony nutbags are, you know, I have all this time because I'm on residency and I'm not at home and I'm figuring out how to take the bus and all this. So I was listening to this podcast about these white supremacists in Canada who came to the States. They were called the base. It's just some little, like, the base, um, and which is what al-Qaeda means. Yes, exactly. And when she talked to the founder of the base, because the woman who's the host had spent a decade after 9-11 doing research into those terrorist groups. And now she's researching white supremacist terrorist groups. And it's wow. all the fucking same. And so when she finally managed to talk to the head of the base, who for some reason is living in Russia... She was like, you know that, that the base is what Al-Qaeda means, right? And he's like, oh, I'm not dealing with that question. Huh. So the story starts with this Winnipeg journalist, because flyers for this were showing up all around Winnipeg. And so he pretended to be interested and had sort of a first meeting with this guy and, and then had like a Zoom call where they first interview you and sort of ask you about your background and blah, blah, blah. And there was somebody else who was on all of those calls who was, had infiltrated it for similar research reasons. So this, this journalist listened to hours and hours of these white supremacist yokels talking to people all over the world who want to join this organization and confessing that, like, yeah, my girlfriend is 116th Jewish. Or, like, like all of this crazy stuff. And this guy who had interviewed the journalist to try to initiate him talked about how he had had a black girlfriend and there had been a pregnancy scare and he was worried because his child would be half not human. Oh God. Like it's now it's right now. These are people happening now. And I feel like that's but one it's of the not things that even, it doesn't have to be that extreme is the thing. I, I think being able to, connect the lines between mouse and what is happening in a, in our neighborhoods like what the the politics that some of our neighbors 
are espousing and supporting and the consequences of it. I think to, to separate, it's just very interesting to me, this idea of wanting to separate the Holocaust from the March for Black Lives and CRT and anything having to do with the specific history of racism in America, which centers around black Africans enslaved and brought here and, and the whole history of that, like to not see that the connection between that and Nazism and anti-Semitism is, uh, it's like a little frightening. And I almost, yeah. I honestly almost wonder if we don't, um, in trying to make everyone understand and remember the utter brutality and atrocity that the Holocaust was, if we don't uh, also convey an idea of exceptionality there. Yes. That th that this yes. is its own thing that is so beyond any other atrocity that uh, you forget to really make connections. That when we say never again, and you know we must remember so that it never happens again, we're not necessarily just saying this specific thing. <laughs> like we don't have to be putting people on trains and taking them to death camps for us to be. Also, never again is hard because because it's happened since then. We say right. never again, and it's like it we still happens. We look happens. at Rwanda and we right. look at Stalin, and we look at what's happening to the Uyghurs in China right now, and we look right. at like we look at what what Pol Pot did, and like the Khmer Rouge, like. This has this has continued to happen the whole yeah whole time. It's always been happening, and it and it's keeps happening, happening right now. Also, though, I feel like there is a way that, in terms of the exceptionalism that people ascribe, that Jews ascribe, in trying to remember the Holocaust, and the intense erasure that has always been a part of post Civil War understanding of blackness, like the the need to erase and the deliberate erasure because in the same way that people would keep what they termed the lower classes, they would keep them from literacy and they would also keep their history from being remembered and which is deliberate. It's deliberate. Of course. But one of the things that I find very odd is that I feel like when I was growing up, Hitler was also an exceptional villain. Mm -hmm. And there's a way with a lot of these white people who are promoting CRT or who are anti-CRT. Or who are anti-CRT. They are trying to both sides Hitler. I'm like, didn't your grandparents fight in World War II? Like, there's a change as the Holocaust moves out of direct historical memory. Time is softening even the most sort of extreme, obvious, big baddie of all time and that is that is that's what very uh yeah. unnerving i'm unnerved by this it's it's what we see when you see a school board trying to ban mouse like oh it's got nudity in it and it's it's too it's too adult somehow or or even too too traumatic and too serious and scary for children whatever the rationale might be the the subtext is it's making us have to think about things that are uncomfortable. And it's it's really odd because like, yeah, Hitler is this figure that that stands in for the worst person of all time. Da, da, da. But like but also why like, are you guys so afraid of Hitler as a bad guy? Like you remember what the US fought for, that's right? The thing, like, because mouse that what 
Mouse doesn't show Hitler. I mean, he might, he's right. probably in it. I don't remember it page to page. No, but, no, like, no. the story is about real people as mice, um, but it, they're neighbors and they're friends and the people they meet on the fucking train and, the you know, the people, their jobs. And, and that's what's so objectionable. Well, and it's also very importantly... And we had an amazing thread. There's actually a listener who I want to have over to talk about Mouse and what they would probably replace Mouse with, where she was writing about it. It was brilliant. And we're going to have her on. But thing, Gwen C. Katz. Gwen C. Katz. She's fantastic. <laughs> you guys should all follow her. She's amazing. But the biggest thing that is under the spine of the entire two volumes of Mouse mm-hmm. is our narrator as the son dealing with historical trauma and the impact of trauma that his, his fucked up dad generational trauma his mother having committed suicide him managing this and what's amazing is that so in mouse the the jews are mice the germans are cats the poles are pigs when he draws himself he has the mask of the mouse on the construction of the Jewish race that he's wearing as a mask because in America where he grew up, it's not what he is. It's an identity that he is performing, that he's wearing, that he's contending with. Mm -hmm. And that is the heart of Mouse. The heart of Mouse is him ignoring the story, not wanting to hear the story, feeling guilty for the ways that he ignored his mother, the way that she's trying to connect with him resisting rebelling against his dad and his dad's bullshit like that is the the engine of that whole fucking two volumes yeah is the inheritance and that is also extremely uncomfortable because you'd almost think that if it was just the story then but it's not but that's like that's what crt is when you are teaching students critical thinking via a CRT lens, or you are just informing your teaching from critical race theory, you are teaching students to think of history as being alive now in themselves and in the people around them and to understand the generational legacy and the, that it's, there's no separation between past and present. And that in, in learning it, you might fight it because it makes you uncomfortable. Because it because makes you that's uncomfortable. Art, and because right. that's Art Spiegelman's whole story. It's a memoir of his discomfort, his inability, him his not wanting shame. to face it. His yeah. shame. Totally. Exactly. Totally. Exactly. totally. That, that's really well noted. It's not just the Holocaust stuff. I think the school board in Tennessee is actually smarter than they realize they are. Because what people really object to about CRT is that... It's the idea that it is holding you, young white person, accountable. It is asking you to look at what your legacy that you're inheriting is. You're not individually responsible for it, but it is the legacy you're inheriting, and you have to face what it is. And you have to face that you are inheriting privileges that are part of a violent legacy. And and I think that that's the other thing that's also hard for a lot of white people is that, like, those privileges don't go away just because you aren't personally racist. Not just that, but also because you got woke. Right. Like you're still going to go out and like 
have those privileges. You'll still have those privileges five years from now. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's a lifelong process. You'll be better at it and worse at it at different points and you have to keep working on it. And I feel like that's really, that is really hard. And I feel like the swiftness of the backlash towards the 1619 project and the March for Black Lives mm. is, is absolutely historically predicted. <laughs> there is precedence for it. And I feel like all of my research is always about that. Mm. Um, but to live in the moment where you see the swiftness of the reaction is, I have to say, it's very painful. It's, it's very painful because there felt like, oh, there was some insight and awareness and a breakthrough. And then just like, there's always, hard. but there's always a backlash. Yeah. And I just want to briefly, we'll probably get to this more deeply later, especially if we can get a really good guest on. So I think that there's something about that discomfort, like this inability to deal with our new Supreme Court justice pick where Justice mm. Breyer has announced his retirement. Biden gets to have a Supreme Court pick. And Biden, in a very old school, white liberal way, is mm. like, I'm going to pick a black woman. Now, Obama wouldn't have done that. Oh, Obama, well, Obama couldn't have done that, to be well, fair. Well, Obama, no, 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 but also Obama, like for Obama to put on Sotomayor. And by the way, I want to say that, like, there are many, many qualified and brilliant jurists who, who could be a Supreme Court justice and do a very good job and a better job than any of the fucking numbnuts who were put on the court by Trump. But Biden said, I'm going to put a black woman on the court. And he shouldn't have said that. He should have just nominated a black woman. Because now it's like Ted Cruz, like, well, I think that that's just racist and I right, can't support right, right, that because right, you're right. just putting this person. And, and but they were going to say that anyway. Though I actually kind of differ with you on this, but I, I totally see where you're coming from. But the reporters were asking it because he was asked it on the campaign trail. Like he was asked it during the campaign. If there's a Supreme Court, will you nominate a black woman? He's like, yes, I will. He made a commitment to do it. And so they yeah. asked him about it again. Now there's seat open. He's like, yep, I'm going to do it. And I, as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, boy, my dad's going to have something to say about that. Right? Like, it's going to be that, like, well, that's racist. But I kind of like it because they're going to say that anyway. He will nominate a black woman, and they're going to say the same thing. Yeah, maybe it's a little harder after the nomination when he, he didn't telegraph it um, to say, oh, this person was only nominated because she's black, because she's a woman. They, they'll imply it. And I think there's something powerful in outright saying real justice is looking for a black woman to nominate. I am well, not looking for the single most qualified candidate I can find. Because well, because that idea is just horseshit. Anyway, it's horseshit, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like, no one's pretending that Brett Kavanaugh and uh, what's Amy Boney Carrot are <laughs> the most qualified people that existed for those rules. No one thinks right. that. Right. Give me a fucking break. So let's drop that pretense and let's say you know what we haven't had on the court? <laughs> you know yes. who isn't represented? If you want to say that it's racist for me to pledge that I will nominate a black woman, I want you to explain why you think there's not a qualified black woman. Right. And I feel like it reminds me very much of, of Harold Washington, who was the famous first black mayor of Chicago. 
And, and there was a beautiful story. It was one of the earliest stories This American Life did. And they were interviewing all these people who, who were black aldermen who had just spent years not getting their fucking, like, yeah. streets swept. <laughs> like, they were like, what happens when any ethnic minority gets power? They elect one of their own. Why was that only a problem when we said that we were going to do that too? What? Because he's like, the Germans, the Poles, like, that's what they, the Italians. They're the like, Jews. the Jews, that's what they do. And I feel like that's something that it's so, like... Reagan said he was going to put a woman on the Supreme Court. Like, mm -hmm. it's something that has always happened where people are like, we're going to put a Catholic on the Supreme Court. We're going to put a Jew on the Supreme Court. And some of them ended up being brilliant jurists. Guess what? They ended up being totally qualified. Like, the woman who is is being looked at as a very probable candidate she was one of Breyer's star clerks and she's mm -hmm. on the DC circuit and she's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and like, course, obviously, obviously, and, but and in he every could state. Just I don't know. He could just nominate a person who's great and it would be great. And we'll have a black woman on the Supreme court. But I, I do think there's a power to sort of like acknowledging putting that, that conversation out there saying there is nothing wrong with noting that no black woman has ever been on this court and that very few black people of any gender have been on the court and very few women. But, and, and I, feel that, like, like, but I feel like, you know, what I think is interesting is that you see the way that rhetoric changes over time, because mm -hmm. I think it was just a very old school thing for Biden to do. It is of another generation, because I feel like there is a way that people fighting against racism saying race shouldn't matter. Excellence should matter. And the mm -hmm. way that that mm -hmm. rhetoric has been co-opted oh, yeah. by the right so that we don't have to acknowledge race and racism. Like that's the sort of rhetorical moment and you're seeing this generational battle over how we're going to play, I how mean, this is going to go. It goes right back to the CRT conversation. That's right. Right? That at one point in time, Martin Luther King stood at the mall in Washington and said, I dream of a day when my children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And that was like the sum total of the civil rights movement. And now we're all going to be judged not by the color of our skin. Equal playing field. It's all fair now. Every, everything, all that except other bad stuff is the over. Republicans, except for the Republicans, somehow, somehow, no person of color says what they want to hear so somehow they are never putting them in positions of power well that's why, thing, why is that huh if it's racist for biden to say he's going to nominate a black woman what is it that there has never been a black woman on the supreme court <laughs> like is that because of racism and and maybe their answer would be yes. I don't I don't actually know what their answer would be. I can't exactly well, get into the rationalization logic of these folks. Because they're never going to have a good faith argument about it. Exactly. So it's not like exactly. we can have a debate where we say, hey, hey, Ted Cruz, come on and let's have this real conversation. Like they're not going to Ted have Cruz it. is going to say whatever he feels will manipulate the people he needs to manipulate. Yeah. But we're we're gonna see how this rolls out because I'm sure it's gonna be a shit show that dovetails in nicely with the ongoing shit show, which is the anti-CRT backlash, which is a bunch of white people freaking out 
at the possibility of having to just see and deal. So uh, if you want to tell us something about your Wordle tricks, if you want to talk to us about your feelings about teaching the Holocaust, uh, you know we're always here for you. Come join us and our amazing patrons on the Sauce Speakeasy. Come become a patron. Patreon.com slash Sauce Podcast. If you want to reach me directly, I am at Gynostar on all the various platforms. And uh, if you want to find me, I'm at Maya Garantz anywhere you are looking for Maya Garantz's. I still haven't solved this word all. I, I didn't I didn't put it want down. to put in a four. Put it down. Let's I'm, let's finish the episode. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to put it down and, and pick it up when we're done. Anyway, if you want to find out if I solved this wordle in four, or well, not fewer, in four, you'll have to wait for our next episode. That's which right. Which will be coming soon. All right, we guys, we'll see you guys soon. Adios, amoebas. Bye.